0: Psalm 131, if this is your first time here, or if it has been a while since you've been with us, we are studying the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, They begin with Psalm 120, they conclude with Psalm 134, and so on the agenda for today is Psalm 131. And I encourage you, invite you to follow along as I read this portion from God's Word. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Uh, a man who lived some years ago, Victor Frankl, he tells of his years in the indescribable horrors of Auschwitz uh, concentration camp during the Second World War. His existence was full of cold, fear, uh, starvation, pain, vermin, dehumanization, exhaustion, and terror. He says he was able to survive because he never lost hope. Uh, Those who did lose hope were doomed. When a prisoner lost hope, Frankel explains, he would let himself decline. Becoming subject to mental and physical decay, he would die from the inside out. This usually happened quite suddenly. One morning, a prisoner would just refuse to get up. He wouldn't dress, he wouldn't wash, he wouldn't go outside. No amount of pleading by his fellow prisoners would help. No amount of threatening by his captors would have any effect. Losing all hope, he had simply given up. He would lie there until he died. Hope is crucial, absolutely crucial to human existence. As Christians, hope is absolutely crucial to our existence. When hope wanes, when hope weakens, the result is always decline. The result is always spiritual inertia. Why bother studying the Bible? Why bother battling with sin? Why bother laboring in prayer? Why bother listening to sermons? Why bother getting up on a Sunday morning? When hope wanes, when hope weakens, we simply, we give up. Uh, That is why as Christians, as believers, we must be careful, we must be cautious, we must be vigilant. One more word, we must be diligent in guarding, cultivating, and nurturing hope. That is what we have before us in Psalm 131. The cultivation, if you like, of hope, or as I have phrased it in the sermon title, the cultivation of contentment. Now, we're going to get to Psalm 131 in just a moment, but we need to begin with definitions. However... Unpleasant that might be. The past couple of Sundays I have emphasized, and yes, you guessed it, I'm going to emphasize it again today, that we are heirs. We have inherited clumsy definitions, downright sloppy definitions at times. Uh, two Sundays ago we noted that we have inherited a clumsy definition of forgiveness. Uh, last Sunday we observed that we have inherited A clumsy definition of guilt. And today, you guessed it, I'm going to affirm that we are the heirs of a clumsy definition of hope. What does it mean to hope? Well, to hope is to believe that anything can happen. Wish upon a star. No, it isn't. To hope is to expect that things will get better. No, it isn't. To hope is to wish for something against all the odds. No, it isn't. To hope is to maintain a sunny outlook and bright disposition despite what happens. No, it isn't. Here is biblical hope. To hope is to wait confidently and expectantly for what the Lord God Almighty has promised. That, my friends, is biblical hope. It is to wait confidently. It is to wait expectantly for what the Lord God Almighty has promised. Uh, Allison and I studied the language Portuguese. Oh, it seems like a lifetime ago. There's a verb in Portuguese, and and I checked this out this past week. It's the same in Spanish. I'm looking over at Angel and Claudia to make sure. It's the same in Spanish. In Portuguese we pronounce it esperar. I think in Spanish it's probably esperar. E S P E R A R A R A R. It means what? It means to wait. It means to hope. And it means to expect. One word meaning all three. To esperar is to wait, it is to hope, and it is to expect in the english language we have three different words representing these three motifs right and i think that has contributed in part in our minds to an in, to, to a lack of understanding as to the interconnectedness between these three hoping waiting and expecting to hope biblical hope it is to wait confidently it is to wait expectantly for what God has promised. Now, we need to develop that. I need to develop that. And I'm going to do so by affirming four truths concerning hope. They correspond in the sermon notes to four blanks. One, two, three, four, the top of the page. My dear wife, Allison, last Sunday afternoon had words with me. And she said, Stephen, I think you know, once in a while it would be good if you actually made reference to the sermon notes and let people know where you are. And so I said, what? Yes, dear. She isn't here. She's out with the kids, but you can do me a favor and assure her later that I, I listen to her wise counsel. I am drawing your attention to the first four blanks in the sermon notes. Four truths concerning biblical hope. Number one, here it is. Biblical hope, hope is the fruit, the fruit of the new birth. Hear the words of First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. According to his great mercy, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us, we do not cause ourselves, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so hope is the fruit, the result, the consequence of the new birth. As a result of regeneration, the Spirit of God entering in, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But by virtue of the Spirit of God entering in, we see what we never saw before. He opens our eyes to see. He opens our he- ears to hear. He opens our minds to perceive he opens our hearts to receive, and as a result, we have hope. We understand what we never understood. Uh, we see the big picture. We see God's wonderful plan of redemption. We see that all things focus upon and center in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we understand, we understand this, according to what Paul says in Romans eight seventeen verse 18, that present suffering is not worth comparing. To future glory. We have been born again to a living hope. Hope is the fruit of the new birth. (laughs) Fact number two. Hope is rooted, founded upon God's word. Here Romans chapter 15 verse 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures... We might have hope. And so again, hope is rooted in God's word. We turn to the scriptures. And there we learn of God. He shows himself. He reveals himself to us. We turn to the scriptures. And there God shows us exactly what he has promised us. He has promised us unconditionally. Every eternal spiritual blessing. Already, Ephesians 1.3, we are seated with Christ where? In the heavenly places. And there in Christ, God has already done what? He has already blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is an unconditional promise to his children. That these eternal spiritual blessings, they are ours unconditionally. But he has also promised us what? Conditionally. He has promised us every temporal, material blessing conditionally. Conditional upon what? As he best sees fit in accordance with his infinite wisdom. As he best deems most suitable to the revelation of his eternal glory and our spiritual good. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. There's a promise, material blessing. But it is a conditional promise. He has not promised to make us healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. He has promised to look after us as best suits the revelation of his eternal glory. And as best suits our spiritual good. must never lose sight of that. We wander from the promises of Scripture to our peril. I mentioned the Portuguese language. Allison and I learning it a lifetime ago in Lisbon. And while we were studying Portuguese, there were other couples, other families studying the language, uh, missionaries preparing to go to Guinea-Bissau, Angola, Mozambique, in Africa, most of them going heading to Mozambique. And there was one couple uh, in their fort, late 40s, 50s, who would come to language class after Ali and I were were finished. We were studying, we were leaving, we would see them on the way in. And so we got to know them a little bit. And uh, one day we started to talk about prophylactics, what we were going to take for malaria once we were in in Africa, our case, Angola, their case, Mozambique. And they assured us that they weren't going to take any prophylactics. They were going out by faith. Uh, I don't say this flippantly. He was dead within two months of setting foot in Mozambique. Cerebral malaria. Uh, He was holding on to something which is not in God's word. He was naming and claiming a promise which did not exist. He was, to his peril, wandering from the word of God. God has promised us unconditionally every eternal spiritual blessing. He has promised us conditionally every material, earthly blessing as best suits the revelation of his eternal glory and as best suits our spiritual good. We presume too much when we think it is all ours right now and all we have to do is name it and claim it. No, you see, hope is fixed on the word of God. Meaning hope is fixed, it is very clear, it is instructed, it is buttressed by what? What God has actually promised and nothing else. And we veer from the promises of God to our peril. Third fact is this. Hope is fixed on God. Psalm 62 verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, for God alone, O my soul, Wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. My hope is from Him. Our God is unchanging. He is immutable. If He isn't immutable, then His promises might be altered. Our God is sovereign. He does control all things. If He isn't sovereign, then His promises might be thwarted. Our God is all-knowing, past, present, future. If he isn't all-knowing, his promises might be misdirected. And our God is alone, all-powerful. If he isn't all-powerful, his promises might be hindered. But he is all these and much more. The psalmist cries, I'm referring to Psalm 89, verse 6, Who in the heaven... Can be compared to God. Take the angels and the archangels. Take the mightiest of the angels. Who among them can be compared to God? Then he asks who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to God. Take the greatest from among men. The strongest. The smartest. The greatest. Who among them can be likened to God? The mightiest of angels and the greatest of humans are but a shadow of a shadow in comparison to God. They are, simply put, less than nothing. This infinite being exists for himself, from himself, and by himself. He is completely independent, he is entirely excellent, and he is wholly perfect. He is incapable of any decrease. He is incapable of any increase. He is incapable of any change. He is an everlasting present. He is, I am. And our hope is fixed upon him. This great unchanging God. The fourth fact is this. Biblical hope is the anchor of the soul. Hear the words of Hebrews 6.19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. We have this as a sure and steadfast, unmovable, unshakable anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into beyond the veil. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. An anchor provides stability. It keeps that boat. It keeps that ship in place no matter what assails it. That's that's the, the word picture that's being employed there in Hebrews. That our hope, it is this anchor to the soul. That this hope that is the fruit of the new birth. This hope that is rooted, established upon God's word. This hope, which is fixed upon God himself, is an unshakable, unwavering, unmovable anchor of the soul. This hope anchors, stabilizes, it steadies the soul when we pass through the deep waters of conviction. Look at the previous psalm, Psalm 130. And look at what the psalmist, nameless, we don't know who wrote this one, Look at what he says at the outset of verse 7. Psalm 130. O Israel, hope in the Lord. What is the theme of Psalm 130? It is deep conviction of soul. And his point is that when we pass through the waters of deep conviction, we must hope in the Lord. Hope is the anchor of the soul when we pass through the deepest waters of conviction. And so he cries out in the very first verse. We saw this last Sunday. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The Lord has sent these waves to overwhelm him. The waves of a disturbed conscience, a tormented mind, a troubled heart. Here is a man deeply affected by the depth of his sin. And you look at what he says in verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness. Forgiveness. He knows who God is. He knows what God has promised. He knows that with God there is steadfast love and there is plentiful redemption. He knows that God has promised to forgive those who repent. That is his hope. He knows who God is. There is forgiveness with him. He knows what God has promised that he will forgive. He will be merciful to sinners who confess their sin and repent of their sin. That is his hope. He hopes in the Lord. So he cries to the Lord from the depths for mercy. And this hope is an anchor of the soul. As he passes through the deep waters of conviction. But now we come to Psalm 131. And what do we see here? We see that not only is hope an anchor. Not only does it provide stability to the soul when we pass through deep waters of conviction, but hope anchors the soul when we pass through the deep waters of affliction. And look at what he says. Here we know the author. It's David. Look at what he says at the outset of verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord. You can put these two psalms side by side. And in each psalm, the key phrase is that very one. Psalm 130, the outset of verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Psalm 131, the outset of verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord in the context of Psalm 130, as you pass through the deep waters of conviction, know who He is and know what He has promised. Psalm 131, as you pass through the deep waters of affliction, Trials, troubles, tribulations, know who the Lord is and know exactly what he has promised. And in Psalm 131, just as he did in Psalm 130, he appeals to his own example. He illustrates what it means to hope in the Lord. We have that in Psalm 130. He gives his own example, hope in the Lord as you pass through deep conviction, learn of me. And now he does exactly the same thing in Psalm 131. Hope in the Lord as you pass through the deep waters of affliction and learn this from me. Basically what he does in the first two verses is he, he latches on two things which imperil our hope. Two things which weaken our hope in the midst of trouble. Two things, let me really cut to the chase, wreak havoc upon our hope. When we find ourselves in distress, in the first verse, you know what it is? Man's pride. And his point is this. If you are going to hope in the Lord, you must come to terms with your pride, and that involves subduing and humbling the heart. In the second verse, he moves on from man's pride, and he enters the realm of God's providence. And so if you, are going to, if you are going to hope in the Lord in the midst of trouble, verse 1, the first thing you must do is this, you must subdue and humble the heart. Secondly, if you are going to hope in the Lord in the midst of trouble, this is what you must do. You must calm and quiet your spirit. Subdue and humble your heart when it comes to pride. Calm and quiet your spirit when it comes to God's providence. You have these two in place, and, O Israel, hope in the Lord. If these two aren't in place, there is no hope for you hoping in the Lord. And so we go to number one. We gravitate to it. We focus in the very first verse, man's pride, a subdued and humbled heart. Look at what he says. Three phrases. And notice the development. There's there's an increase here. O Lord, verse 1. My heart, the focus is upon the heart. These are three negative statements. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. And then the second statement, middle of verse 1, my eyes. He's moved from the heart to the eyes. What he looks at, what he desires, what he sets his mind on. My eyes are not raised too high. And then the third statement, he's moved from the heart to the eyes, to life, to actions. I do not occupy myself with things. Too great and too marvelous for me. Back to the very first one. My heart is not lifted up. Pride begins in the heart. Pride is the root of all evil. Self-love is the original sin. And self-love is the root of all sins. Self-love was the first thing we put on in the, gar- in the garden, the first thing we lost in the garden, and it is the last, we, first thing we put on in the garden, and it is the last thing we will take off in glory. Love of self in the heart, corrupting every thought, corrupting every word, corrupting every deed. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. And he says, "My eyes. Pride leads to what? It leads to ambition. We crave man's acceptance." We crave man's admiration. We crave man's adulation. And then he builds the third statement. I do not occupy myself with things too great, too marvelous for me. Pride leads to presumption. We presume to search out hidden things. We presume to seek after, long after, great things. But the psalmist's point is this. He has a firm grasp on the condition of his heart. He has a firm understanding as to what pride is. This self-love which resides within manifests itself in the eyes, ambition. Manifests itself in actions, presumption. But his point is what? He has subdued and humbled his heart. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Steady on and be very careful. He is not claiming to be perfect. He is claiming to be sincere as he watches for pride and as he strives against it. Now How does he do that? And who, who among us would, would even claim that? How does he do this? And how can he claim publicly, my heart is not lifted up? My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Here is where the relationship between Psalm 130 and Psalm 131 comes clearly into view. Psalm 131 is entirely meaningless apart from Psalm 130. You can't take the first step in Psalm 131 until you've come to terms with Psalm 130. You can't even enter into the the world, the realm of Psalm 131 until you have lived through Psalm 130. How does he subdue and humble his heart? He subdues and humbles it because he knows who he is. He knows who God is. And he knows exactly what he deserves. Go back. Dive back into Psalm 130. And look at what he says in the third verse. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. O Lord, who could stand? Here's a man who knows himself. Here's a man who sees clearly his own, his own sin, his own sinfulness. And a man, again, let me repeat it, who knows exactly what he deserves from God. But here's a God, a man, we saw it already in the fourth verse, who knows God. He knows that with him there is forgiveness. Verse 7, he knows that with him there is steadfast love and there is plentiful redemption. So here is a man who knows himself, the depravity and the darkness of his heart, and exactly what he deserves. And yet here is a man who knows who God is. And here is a man who has tasted God's forgiveness. And it has subdued And humbled his heart. If I walk arrogantly before the Lord. I can tell you why. It's because I've never been to Calvary's cross. If I am marked and characterized by a haughty spirit. I can tell you why. It's because I've never really come to grips with the gospel. If I am just full of myself. I can assure you as to why. It's because I have never tasted God's forgiveness. Here is a man who understands the gospel. Dare I say, a man who understands the gospel better than many professing Christians claim to understand the gospel in our day. Here is a man as clear as to who he is. Here is a man who is very clear when it comes to understanding who God is. A man who can cry out, With conviction, if God should mark, if he should preserve for the day of judgment my iniquities, I know what I deserve. I will not be able to stand before him, before his tribunal, before his judgment. But I know this God is merciful. I know this God is forgiving. I know that with him there is steadfast love toward his people. I know that with him there is plentiful redemption. And in God there is forgiveness. I have tasted of his forgiveness. I never lose sight of that forgiveness. And that is why my heart is not lifted up. That is why my eyes are not raised up. That is why I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Martin Lloyd-Jones summed it up wonderfully as follows. There is only one thing that crushes me to the ground. And humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the Son of God. And especially contemplate the cross. If ever I am to hope in the Lord. In the midst of trouble. Here is something I must come to grips with. It is my pride. And the only way I can do that. Is at the foot of Calvary's cross. Be very clear on my sinfulness, be very clear on God's holiness, and be very clear that there is unimaginable forgiveness through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the second verse, he shifts gears. He leaves behind him, although there is is a correlation, for the most part, he leaves behind him the issue of man's pride, a subdued and humbled heart. Now he knows there's a second thing we must come to terms with if we're going to hope in the Lord in the midst of trouble, and that is God's providence. A calmed and quieted soul. His words, right at the outset of verse 2. Here's what I have done. Just as in the first verse, I have not lifted up my heart, I have not raised up my eyes, I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. Here also is what I have done. I have calmed and quieted, My soul when it comes to the providence of God which is ultimately inscrutable, I have stilled my soul. When it comes to to understanding the difficulty I'm going through, we don't know when David wrote this psalm. It might have been while he was running from Saul, it might have been while he was fleeing from Absalom. There are any number of scenarios which fit. When he when he couldn't understand his circumstances, his condition was perplexing when he couldn't make sense of God's providence, when he couldn't make sense of what he was going through, here is what he did. I have calmed and quieted my soul. I'm going to be quick here. I'm going to affirm that he has calmed and quieted his soul, meaning he has rid his soul of four things. Here they are. I'm going to be quick. First is this, inordinate longing. When I overvalue something I want, I vex my soul. Inordinate longing. When I overvalue something I want, I vex my soul. Obstinate clinging. When I overvalue something I have, I vex my soul. Distrustful worrying. When I undervalue God's power, I vex my soul ungrateful murmuring when i undervalue god's goodness i vex trouble my soul i'll say it if your heart your soul is troubled these days right now if as you take stock you examine yourself your soul you, you, you find yet yeah, a yeah, bone out of joint I, I get what the psalmist is saying uh, troubled vexed Always agitated. I promise you, I guarantee you, it's for one of those four reasons right there. I can't tell you which. I can't give you the details. But I can tell you most definitely, it's one of those four. Inordinate longing. When I overvalue something I want, I trouble my soul. Obstinate clinging. When I overvalue something I have, I refuse to let go of it. I trouble my soul distrustful worrying, when I undervalue God's power, I trouble my soul. And ungrateful murmuring, when I undervalue God's goodness, as I've experienced it and tasted it on so many occasions, I trouble my soul. Undoubtedly, that is what David has clearly in view. Those four, perhaps one of them, perhaps two, perhaps all of them, as he claims, I have calmed and quieted my soul. And then he makes a beautiful comparison. He repeats it twice for emphasis. Here is how I have calmed and quieted my soul. Here's how I've done it. Like a weaned child with its mother. In case you missed it, like a weaned child, is my soul within me. Why this comparison? Why this similitude? Why this word picture? A calm and quiet soul. What is it he sees in a weaned child? What is it he has seen in one of his sons, one of his daughters, when they reach that age, when they are weaned? Uh, What is it he has perceived that points to his own state, his own condition of what it means to have calmed and quieted his soul? Let me sum it up for you in four statements. Number one is this. A weaned child is cut off from his mother's milk. That's obvious, isn't it? A wean child is cut off from his mother's milk. David's point is this, that he has calmed and quieted his soul by cultivating self-denial. He has weakened his attachment to the world. Far too many of us, our roots go way too deep. Way too deep. You want to transplant a tree, talk to Miles Montgomery about that, not me, but I do know this. You want to take a tree, transplant it somewhere else. Uh, you need to dig around it, right, and get down to make sure you get most of the roots. And you need to detach those roots from the ground because they go deep. They're in there. Detach them, get it up, build, dig another hole, transplant the tree. Our problem is this. Our roots are a mile deep in this world. And our roots are a mile wide. Oh, the world is crucified to me. And I crucified to the world, could claim the Apostle Paul. And David calms and quiets his soul by cultivating self-denial. He weakens his attachment to the world. Second truth is this, in that similitude of the weaned child. A wean child is incapable. Of doing anything by himself. In this, David sees what? He sees that he calms and he quiets his soul by cultivating humility. He realizes, like like a weaned child, he isn't in control of anything. Nor does he know what is best for him. Oh, as for me, says the psalmist, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought of me. Number three, a weaned child is reliant upon his mother for everything. Likewise, David calms and quiets his soul by cultivating dependence. He recognizes that all things come from God. Psalm 62, 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. Number four, a weaned child is happy with what his mother gives him. A weaned child is happy with what his mother gives him. Meaning what? David calms and quiets his soul by cultivating contentment. He learns to be happy with what God gives him. He learns to live by what God gives him. I have learned, says the Apostle Paul, in whatever situation, I am to be content. I forgot my wife's counsel, didn't I? Those four blanks corresponded to the four under the second heading. A weaned child is cut off from his mother's milk. Meaning what? David cultivates through self-denial that calm and quiet spirit. A weaned child, number two, is incapable of doing anything by himself. So David cultivates, nurtures that calm and quiet spirit by cultivating humility. Number three, a weaned child is reliant upon his mother for everything. David calms and quiets his spirit by cultivating dependence. Fourthly and finally, a weaned child is happy with whatever his mother gives him. David calms and quiets his soul by cultivating contentment. Oh, Christian, hear this. God is, our God is infinitely wise. Our God is incomparably powerful. Our God is immeasurably good, and therefore we are content when we resign ourselves to his will with respect to present conditions and with respect to future events. When God wills sickness, easy for me to say because I stand before you very healthy, but I will say it anyway. When God wills sickness, it is better to be sick than healthy. When God wills weakness, it is better to be weak than strong. When God wills reproach, it is better to be reproached than honored. When God wills poverty, it is better to be poor than wealthy. When God wills persecution, it is better to be persecuted than to be accepted. When God wills death, it is better to die than to live. Really, really. Only when we have a calm and quiet soul. Only when we have resigned ourselves to who God is. Infinitely wise incomparably powerful and immeasurably good. Christian, fix your mind on this truth and never lose sight of it. God is a Father who loves His children and who knows what is best for His children. God is a Father who knows His children and who knows precisely what is best his children Fanny J. Crosby penned a few hymns back in the 1800's and when she was eight years of age she wrote the following oh what a happy child I am although I cannot see I am resolved that in this world contented I will be eight years of age she was blinded two years before let me repeat what she said Oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. Eight years of age. Oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented, I will be like a weaned child, a calm and quiet soul. Resting in this glorious truth that our God is infinitely wise. Our God is incomparably powerful. Our God is immeasurably good. Our God is a father who loves his children and knows what is best for his children. And so in the first verse, David, he's laid it out. Pride is going to be an issue when you pass through trouble. And you need a subdued and a humbled heart. Verse 2, wrestling with God's providence and kicking against God's providence is going to be a problem when you pass through trouble and you need a calmed and quieted soul having addressed those two what is his exhortation and the main intent of the psalm verse 3 o israel hope in the lord from this time forth and forevermore impossible if we have not addressed pride according to verse 1 impossible if our heart is not subdued and humbled impossible if we have not addressed the content of verse 2, God's providence, if our soul isn't calmed and quieted. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. There was a hymn from centuries ago. One of the stanzas reads as follows. With this I'll conclude. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? When the clouds unfold their wings of strife, When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul. Steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Our God and Heavenly Father. We beseech you this day to bless and prosper the proclamation of your word. We pray that you would incline, we pray again that you would incline our hearts and our minds heavenward. We pray that as we have unfolded and expounded and declared and applied, that by your spirit you would be well pleased to help us put in practice. We ask this for the furthering of your kingdom among us. We ask this for the furthering of your glory. And we ask it in the matchless name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.